Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, as we continue our series in Tales of the Kingdom, as we look into the parables taught by our Lord, and uh, we go through each one that we're looking at verse by verse. And as you turn there, I'm going to pray, and uh, then we'll read God's Word. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to gather, and thank you for the privilege it is to sing. And uh, God, we are a singing people because we are a saved people. And we know that that salvation has come at a tremendous cost. Your son left his throne in heaven and came to this earth and lived a perfect life and died on the cross. And on that cross and through that cross, he has paid for our sins. And he has canceled all the debt that we owe you, all all because of what he did. And we thank you that he was buried and then on the third day he rose again and that he ascended back into heaven. And uh, now we pray that you will bless your word as the gospel is preached. May it be proclaimed faithfully and may it be presented clearly. I pray that you would cleanse my own heart, that you would remove distractions out of my own mind so that your word will be made known. I pray that you give us hearts that will receive and to understand, ears to hear and hearts to receive and eyes to see the greatness of your gospel. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. The title of the message today is A Tale of Forgiveness, Matthew chapter 18, and stand with me as we read God's word, and we're going to begin reading in verse 21. And here's what Scripture says. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will, I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that, he, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I think all of us would agree that we live in a completely unforgiving culture. And in the current moment, we hear of people being canceled all the time. 
You see that in the picture there on the screen. I think that probably if you just go back several years ago, you wouldn't have heard that term, but it has become not only coined, but it has become quite popular. I think every week we hear of somebody who has been canceled or they have been shamed and they have been pushed out of, uh, out of the spotlight or out of a role or a position or, or something because of what they have done. One blunder, one mistake, one error and you are done. That is the rule of our society. You might say or do the wrong thing in the present, or it might even be something from the past that might be discovered in old yearbooks or on social media. And so at the bare minimum, your post might be disliked, or you might be unfriended on social media. That's how we do cancel culture on social media, isn't it? We unlike or we dislike or we unfriend. In fact, uh, we, we, we even live in an age where truth doesn't matter. I mean, we live in a time that if you just simply make someone feel bad because of the truth, that is considered self-harm by our society and you will be condemned. Expect no mercy, no grace, and certainly no forgiveness in our current cultural moment. You and I live in a world that Philip Yancey, who wrote What's So Amazing Amazing About Grace, he said we, we live in a world that, that he calls ungrace, a world of ungrace. And that brings us right to the text that's in front of us because Peter asks a significant question in verse 21. Now, to get the context here, Uh, Jesus has been teaching about what it should be like, not in the culture, but particularly in the church among believers. And he has been teaching about what it means to forgive a brother who sins against you. And Peter comes to him in verse 21, and you can read it there in your Bibles, and he said, Lord, well, how often will my, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, the thing that you need to really keep in front of you as we move through this is that Peter recognizes that sin and offenses will happen in the church. So he's not surprised by that. No one is. I mean, Jesus has already addressed it. There will be real grievances and real wrongs committed because the church is comprised of forgiven sinners who have still remaining sinful natures. And so I want to be clear here, though. I think it's important to be clear that when we say sin, what we're referring to is an actual evil being inflicted. Again, we got to clarify this. A law being violated, a trespass being committed. And I have to say that because we live in an age of therapy and hypersensitivity where how people feel is ultimate. What Jesus is teaching here has nothing to do with feelings detached from the truth. If we're offended by truth, well then we're just offended by truth. But the reality is, is that Peter wants to know that when there is a real offense, when there is a real sin, he wants to know, um, he, he wants to know from Jesus 
what is the expectation on forgiving a brother or sister in Christ? How many times? And notice what Peter says. He says seven times. Is that how many? Seven times? Now, now keep in mind the reason that he says seven is that that number symbolizes completeness in Scripture. And so it, 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 the, the number seven actually would have been generous in the eyes of the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees taught that you had an obligation to forgive your brother three times, and then after it, three strikes, you're out. And the Pharisees based that on, a, on, on, a prophet, on the prophet Amos and a teaching in the, in, his, in the prophecy of Amos that had to do with the forgiveness of God or God's judgment against wicked nations. And so Jesus actually, the way he answers this question, he says seven times, he says 70 times seven. Now, the point of Jesus' answer will actually go back to Genesis chapter 4, and it has to do with Lamech and, and, and the sin of Cain, where we're told, where, where the Bible teaches that Cain, Cain's sin was to be looked upon seven times. In fact, I'll just go there so I don't mess it up. But Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And so the point being is, is that Cain's vengeance was sevenfold, and then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And Jesus flips this upside down and says, actually, we shouldn't seek vengeance seven times or 70 times seven. We should forgive 70 times seven. His point that Jesus is making to this audience and to the disciples is that there should be no limit on forgiveness among forgiven people. That's his point. Our disposition before God is always a readiness in our hearts to forgive others. That's what Jesus is driving at. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a preacher, a Lutheran pastor during World War II, who was actually killed by the Nazis, he wrote this in his book, Life Together. He said, in a world, live together in forgiveness of your sin, for without it, no human fellowship, least of all, a marriage can survive. And so Bonhoeffer is right. At the very core of our life together as believers is the reality of forgiveness. So the key kingdom truth that Jesus is communicating is simply this. Everyone who has been forgiven by God through Christ must be ready to forgive. Ready to forgive. Are you generally a forgiving person? Are you generally standing in a posture to walk in forgiveness with us. And I'll be truthful. I mean, going back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I read that at every wedding almost that I have, that I have ever officiated. Because the reality is, there is no human fellowship. If it wasn't for forgiveness, and if it wasn't for grace and the gospel, even in my own marriage, we would not be married today. Now, maybe you have it far more together than I do, but I've already told you all along the way, I'm never going to get up here and pretend I've got it together. All right? Just not. So, so the, the real, I, I don't, you know, people, I'm serious, like, I don't care that you know that I'm not perfect. <laughs> Just letting you know, all right? So, so, so this truth that Jesus is driving at, everyone who has been forgiven by God through Christ must be ready to forgive. 
And then what Jesus does is he tells a parable to illustrate his point to the disciples. Because this question obviously is coming in terms of how we interact with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so in the parable, there are three key things. You'll see the unpayable debt. You'll then see the unforgiving servant. And then you'll see the un, you'll, you'll see the unmistaken truth. And that's what we want to look at here in the parable. So let's look at the first thing, the unpayable debt in the parable. In verse 23, the scripture says, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared. And so what Jesus is doing here is saying, listen, those who have entered the kingdom of heaven, those who are now ruled by Christ, those who have now experienced salvation, those that are in this kingdom may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children all that he had and payment to be made. So notice, in this unpayable debt, the first thing you observe about this man is that he faced an immeasurable problem. There was a king, and he had a servant who had stolen or misused or misappropriated the king's funds that most likely had been collected through taxes, a very common thing that would have happened in government, among government officials at this time. And thus the man faced two problems. Problem one was what he owed. What was owed? I mean, look at the text. He, he owed an immeasurable, un, an immeasurable, unpayable debt. 10,000 talents. The amount was extraordinary. The disciples listening would have been shocked by this. The average working man would have earned one talent a year. All right? So just figure that out. One year, one talent. Are you seeing how immeasurable this debt is? And the average working man not only would have made one talent, but if you look at that from the day, one author points out that today's average salary for a working class job is 40000 a year. That would make this man's debt $400 billion, which would be more than the gross national product of 80% of the countries of the world today. Jesus' intent is hyperbole. He wants them to have their eyes open and their mouths dropped because they want to, he wants them to be shocked by the immensity of this debt. And it demonstrates this extraordinary debt demonstrates the greatness of this man's sin against the king. Getting it? The immensity of the debt demonstrates the greatness of the sin that this man has committed against the, the king. And that brings you to problem number two, what was ordered. So what was owed, 10,000 10, talents, and what was ordered by the king is his next problem. The text emphasizes the man's inability to pay. The king took this offense seriously. He exposes the truth. He is not harsh. He's just just. You see it? He's not harsh. He's just just. There's nothing unkind about calling the man to accountability. And not only calling the man to accountability, but ordering the man to face the consequences for his mismanagement. He is to be sold into slavery or servitude, and his family is to be sold into servitude. 
And while the king might recover some of the loss, I already told you, it would take, it would take 10,000 lifetimes to pay that off. 10,000 years it would take him to pay that off. So while the king might recover some of his loss by putting him in the servitude and then collecting from him as he's working, the man will lose everything that he owns, not as payment, but as punishment. So not only do you have what he owes, you have what is ordered, a punishment, a penalty. Now listen, Jesus' point is extraordinarily clear. And the point is this, God is the king, and man, that's us, the man is us. And the debt is our sin. Our debt to God, are you listening? Our debt to God is 10,000 times greater than what this man owed to this king. We owe God perfect obedience and pure love and worship. Yet we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now you may consider yourself to be a pretty good person. But I want to remind you this morning that one sin, did you hear me? Just one sin, one lie, one act of disobedience, one offense against God is considered cosmic treason. Just one sin makes every single one of us deserving of eternal wrath and judgment in hell. So nobody walks out and says, well, you know, I'm just a pretty good person. Nope. We're all in the 10,000 talent category. The good news of the gospel can never be grasped until we see that our sin against a holy God is far greater in injustice than anything that could be done to us. So what does the servant do? Well, he made an imploring plea. So he faced an immeasurable problem, and then he made an imploring plea. Look at verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, begging him, pleading with him. Oh, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Do you see him? He's definitely groveling at his feet. He is desperate. And I want you to observe that at least there's a couple of good things here, right? I mean, the man doesn't make excuses. There's no blame shifting. There's no self-justifying. He, he, he recognizes his debt and the desperation of his situation. Falling to his knees, he pleads for the king, just have patience with me. Now, here's what I want you to catch. His posture is right, but his promise is wrong. Do you see that? His posture is right. He should be at the mercy of the king. He has sinned, but his promise to the king is wrong. You know how I know his promise is wrong? He can't pay the debt. What are you talking about you'll pay the debt? It's impossible to pay a debt, this debt. Even after a thousand lifetimes of labor, he would still find himself insufficient to dig himself out of this. And you know what I, this, I think, really makes clear to us? Repentance is not, I'm sorry, I'll never do this again. I'll do better. I'll try harder. I'll go to church every week. I'll clean up my act. I'll read my Bible every day. You want to know why those kind of promises are nonsense? One, no one of us will ever keep any of those promises. And two, it doesn't matter what you promise to do, you can never do anything that will earn your way or pay for the sin that you have committed. 
We cannot pay for our salvation. We cannot earn our salvation. We cannot, we cannot buy our salvation. We are at the mercy of the sovereign God himself. Here's what repentance is. Repentance is, I am a sinner. I cannot right this wrong. I can do nothing to make myself righteous. The debt is too great and the sin is too mighty. I cannot do anything to get myself out of this situation. Therefore, I turn and plead for mercy and forgiveness that can only come through Jesus Christ. That's what repentance is. And so that, that's, that's why we, we if, I, if I just chase just one quick rabbit, that, that's why we always need to emphasize that do not connect repentance with behavior modification, right? If, if you're a child here, you're a kid, or you're a teenager, and you, you've been saved, and you've repented of your sin, you have repented of your sin and your assurance is in the mercy of God through Christ, not in your ability to clean your room every week or do what your parents say. Don't make promises you can't keep because you can't keep any of them. And even if you did, they'd earn you nothing. And so repentance, therefore, again, just to, to reiterate, his posture of repentance is right, but his promise is completely off. And so that leads you then to the next verse. Look at verse 27. In verse 27, the text says, and out of pity for him. Man, there you go. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, I want you to notice something. The man's unpayable debt met undeserved forgiveness. Do you see this? And there are three things that I want you to see in, in this infinite pity that he had. When it says, and out of pity for him, this pity conveyed three things. Compassion. Look what the, the text says. The king took pity on him. Do you see what we do, do you see what Jesus is giving us? He's giving us, he's allowing us to peer into the heart of the king. This is not a harsh king. That is not a hateful king. This is a gracious king. And, and the very word pity is the same word used in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when it says Jesus saw the helpless and the hurting in the crowd, and he was moved with what? Compassion. Same word. In other words, the king's heart attitude towards the man is that of pity, mercy, and the king does not overlook the offense. He does not excuse the evil. He doesn't simply pity. doesn't mean he just feels sorry for him. It actually means he sees his helpless state and he acts for his good. So there's compassion, but there's also commitment. Look what the king did. Released him. <laughs> he released him. He will not give the man what he deserves. He sees the man. He has pity for his circumstance. And he releases him. He releases him from guilt, free grace, and pardons him completely, full forgiveness. He is released from guilt. And he is liberated from punishment. That means he will not count this against him. 
So there's compassion, there's commitment, but notice there's a cost. The king forgave him. And the wording of the text is clear. Underlined in each part, out of pity for him, the master, the king of that servant, released him and then forgave him. So there's a compassion, there's a commitment, and there is a cost. The entire debt, are you getting this? The entire debt, without hesitation, without any addition, without any condition, the king canceled the debt. And the great offense is totally forgiven. But I want you to see, this does not mean that the king sweeps it under the rug, that he ignores it, that he pretends it didn't happen. There is a cost. There's a cost. The king will absorb the loss. Still something I had to pay for this. A 10,000 talents. The king will simply absorb the cost. He will absorb the offense himself. He will pay for the offense, and he will let the offender go free. This illustration I read this week. You borrow my car, and you total it. And I come to you, and I say, well, I'll, I'll forgive you. That doesn't mean that the, what happened just disappeared. It just means, you know what? I'm not going to ask you to pay me back. I'll either have to go and buy myself a new car, or I will have to live without one. Who bears the cost? I have to bear the cost if I grant forgiveness. And so Tim Keller says this, forgiveness means the cost of the wrong moves from the perpetrator to you, and you bear it. Now you know why I emphasize those three things? Because this is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Colossians 2, verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, and this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The point is this, God has infinite compassion for us. Our sins must be punished. Our debts must be paid. And Jesus Christ went to the cross and was punished in our place. All of the just judgment for our offenses was poured out on him. And there on that cross, there on that cross, Jesus paid the debt by shedding his blood on Calvary for us. What a cost! And then, listen, he settled our accounts. Not by just bringing the balance to zero, but by filling our accounts with endless riches of righteousness. In Christ, dear friend, hear me. In Christ, a sinner is forgiven. A sinner is forgiven and the greatness of our sins is no match for the greatness of His grace. If you trust Christ for salvation, your forgiveness is absolute. He totally forgives you. God will not recall or remember your sin. He will never bring it back up. He will never hold it over your head to shame you or condemn you. The psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Isn't that amazing? That is what we have in the cross of our Savior. 
And Jesus Christ, as we sang just a minute ago, is such a dear friend to us that he is committed to us and he will forever keep us in that saving, redeeming, and forgiving love. The Apostle John says this in Revelation chapter 1. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. To him who loved us. To the king who loved us to the king who liberated us, to the king who walked into our cell and unshackled us from the bondage of sin and let us exit into complete the to complete freeness of his grace, that king, to him be glory forever and ever. And so that's what Jesus tells us about the unpayable debt. The unpayable debt was paid in full by the king himself, Jesus Christ. So here's the kingdom question that it leads us to. Have you been forgiven of your grievous sins by God through Christ? And I worded that question so that we'll get it. I don't care if you're 10, and I don't care if you're 80. Your sins against God are grievous. What great debt has been canceled at the cross for you? Isn't that good to know that Christ not only can forgive our grievous sins, but that he can cancel our great debt. Now, we all should just say amen, close our Bibles, and go home because we feel really good right now, don't we? But we got to go to the second part of the story. The unpayable debt unfolds into an ungrateful or unforgiving servant. The ungrateful servant. Now, with this picture of divine forgiveness in mind, Jesus now transitions, and what he wants to do is demonstrate, now, what should be then flowing out of our lives since we have been forgiven of so much? I mean, it would be logical for us to say, man, this guy could never be the same. I mean, he had to be transformed. And so now Jesus, what he does is he gives us a similar situation that unfolds in the life of this man. And the first thing you'll notice is in verse 28, you'll see the predicament of a fellow servant. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Are you getting the picture here? Quite a contrast to what just happened. Yeah, it's the same guy. The same guy who had unpayable debt now is an ungrateful servant. He has a colleague who owes him 100 denarii, which most commentators say is about 100 days of wages. Pretty big debt, but still payable. I mean, it's not, I would say this, it's not comparable to this man for sure. And so Jesus wants you to see the comparison. Notice what happens to this man. He impulsively, the ungrateful servant impulsively sought him. This is not about settling something justly. This is about seeking someone vengefully. Do you see it? This isn't about settling something justly. This is about seeking someone vengefully. He has forgotten what just happened to him. And not only does he seek this guy out, hey, you owe me, man. He seizes him. Look at the way he interacts with him. He chokes him. 
the, the verse says that he seized him and he began to choke him. Do you see the, the vengeful violence in the way this man is approaching his colleague? And then he irrationally sentenced him, demanding him, you pay what you owe me. Give me what's mine. And of course that unfolds to imprisonment. And so, but, but as soon as he goes to this guy, you see what's in his heart. He has sentenced this guy in his heart. Now remember how had the king treated this man? Do you remember? He had been treated justly, not harshly. And then you see the predicament unfolds into the plea of the fellow servant. Look at verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Look familiar? Have patience with me. I'll pay you. He refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So, so notice what happened. Just like he did with the king, the fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me. And he said, I'll pay you. I'll make things right. And, and so this all should seem familiar. This man had been rescued and released along with his whole family by the king. But notice the ungrateful servant's response to his colleague is twofold. He ignored him and he imprisoned him. See it? The text says he refused. The king had pity in his heart. This man had pride in his heart. This should not be. That's, that's the whole point. And so not only does he ignore him, he totally ignores his plea. Where would you be today if God had ignored your plea for mercy? Where would we, any of us be had God ignored our situation? If God imprisoned us, we would all be sentenced to eternal hell. And so this man in his heart, and in literally, he imprisons this man. He puts him in debtor's prison, which was common in those days, where the prisoner would work to pay his debt. And it really was, it's really irrational, it's stupid, because you're not going to get, if you put a person in, in any creditor, putting a, a person that owes them something into debtor's prison is just going to slow the process down in getting what is owed. Now, do you remember how the king responded to this servant? This servant was met with compassion, not condemnation. You need to note that. So, how had the king responded to his plea? With compassion, not condemnation. How had the king treated him? Justly, not harshly, and in the end, gracefully. It is easy for us to see the absurdity of this situation. This man, forgiven of so much, should have been able to forgive his fellow servant of less, but he did not. The point is this. The gospel liberates us not to, to not hold lesser things over people's heads or to keep a little back, a black book or a scorecard on other people. No, you know what? The grace of God frees me. I don't have to have a black book. I don't have to have a scorecard. You know why? Because I've been forgiven. And if I've been forgiven, then I can live with an attitude and posture of forgiveness to other people. So if you've got a black book on me, you've got to get rid of it today. Just kidding. Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Now, here's what I think. What I think clearly is, is that this is not easy. 
Okay, it's not easy. It's easy to stand up here and talk about the greatness of the gospel and how that plays out in our lives. It's a whole other thing for it to play out in our marriages, with our spouse, with our children, in our relationships. And, and so this is not easy. And, and so it wouldn't be, how do I know it's not easy? Peter comes to Jesus and says, wait a minute. Okay, like, okay, we shouldn't have to forgive three times. How about seven? Is that a fair, like, can we just do seven times? And then we, like, go after their jugular. Can we do it that way? <laughs> Peter's struggling with this. I get why, I like Peter, right? I understand, right? He's, he, he probably does have that secret list, like he's ready. He's ready to draw that sword. Everybody's going down. Cross me, and Jesus is like, no, Peter, you're gonna have to be, you have to put away your list and put away your sword. And so I think that there are a couple of things in our time that makes it difficult, and I think it bears into the, the passage before us. I, I think what happens is, is that by, by our sinful natures, we're vengeful. That's the first thing. I think by our sinful natures, we're vengeful. And then we also live in a day of victimization. Now, I'm not saying there are people that are legitimate victims. And there is no excuse for abuse or mistreatment of any person. Right? So I want to make that clear. But being a victim and living in victimization, two different things. And we live in a day of victimization. Again, what I said in the beginning. You, may, you hurt my feelings. Well, now I'm just going to be, I'm going to be in victimization state for, forever. And so vengeance, both of these things are obstructions to true forgiveness. We want to take justice in our own hands with vengeance. We wanna, we, we, and we have to fight our tendency to be bitter, angry, hateful, and vengeful. Sometimes terrible things happen to us. Great offenses and our desire for justice might very well be real. We're not talking about petty things in that case. But, 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 but our desire for justice can never overshadow the need for us to always be ready to forgive. We forget what we have been forgiven of. And we recall what we are owed because of whatever. And all the while, we forget what we have been forgiven of. Now, victimization turns into the other side. Victimization is that we want to be the victim even when we are not. It's like, it's like in our home, right? I mean, I'll just give you like just one illustration. Like, Ellie called me a stupid head. remember having that conversation. I should have used a different child. But anyway, Ellie called me a stupid head. Okay. Then we all get together. We're sitting there at the table. Why are we calling each other stupid head? You shouldn't have called. Ellie, you should not have called so-and-so a stupid head. Why did you call Gabe a stupid head? And that's wrong to call him stupid head. But then, here's, how, here's what I'd always do. Gabe, are you a stupid head? Right? Because we're all stupid heads sometimes. Follow with me? I'm trying to use a light illustration here. So, the point is, is that what I'm trying to drive home is, is that we're not going to live in a state of victimization. But maybe there's some truth in what Ellie said. Gabe's not here, so I can say that. Proverbs 25, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. In my years of ministry, those who have been given toward vengefulness or victimization are most difficult, it, it, are, are become difficult when it comes to forgiveness. Because here's why. 
when we live in those states, we're not able to say, I'm sorry, I admit wrong. We tend to shift the blame. We think of ourselves to be godly, and we simply do this. We forget the gospel. We forget. And so what we try to do in our home, which I think just applies everywhere else is, is that you don't get to simply walk around and parade for justice, and neither do you get to lay around in self-pity and play the victim. Why? Because the goal is forgiveness. Follow me? The goal is forgiveness. And that is what we should strive toward. So after we have those conversations, it's okay. We have something specifically that's happened that is wrong. Is that wrong? Yes. If there's truth in it, let's search it out. But then we, it, we, we state the wrong, and then the one that has st- done the wrong looks at the other and has to say, I am sorry, and you have to state what you did that was wrong. Then the other person, the other kid, has to look and say, I forgive you. If I don't hear the words forgive, this is called forced repentance, just letting you know. I forgive you of and then state it. And then after that happens, do you know what we do? You both got a hug. You got a hug. You got a hug, and they're siblings. You got to kiss each other on the cheek. And then before you know it, we've gone from angry, screaming about our rights, mad about everything else, to we're laughing and we're goofy, be, being silly, and there's been restoration. That leads us to this kingdom question. The kingdom question is this. How do we respond to the offenses of others? Do you seek forgiveness and forgive others, or do you refuse? That's what this text implies to our hearts. So we've talked about the unpayable debt. We've looked at the ungrateful servant. But then I want you to see at the very end the unmistaken truth. Verse 32, verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And so notice the distressful report of the other servants. The servants saw the whole scenario. They were horrified. They watched a fellow servant place himself. They watched this man who had been forgiven of so much now place him of himself above the king that had forgiven him and act contrary to how he had been treated. He should have been transformed by what had happened. That's what Jesus is driving at. Divine forgiveness is what drives our forgiveness to one another. If you've been forgiven, saturate yourself in that. And the more you do, it transforms you. He should have been ready to forgive after all he had experienced. And so this distressful report is taken to the king and told and noticed the decisive reaction of the king. Verse 32, his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay the debt. And so notice what the king did. He imposed a clear statement. He said, your actions are deplorable. You are a wicked servant. It was wicked, why? Because I have forgiven you of everything, of everything. The clear statement affirms the path to forgiveness. Truth, compassion, repentance, forgiveness, and then release. Jesus is not teaching here that we give out forgiveness cards. What he's teaching us is that we walk a path of forgiveness 
And that while our attitude should always be one of forgiveness, we can't grant forgiveness until there's actually been true repentance. This man clearly did not have true contrition over what he had done. And so the king imposed a clear statement. Look, you're deplorable because you've been forgiven of everything. And then he asked a convicting question. Look at the question. He says, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? He reminds him of the mercy that he'd been given, and and that is an indicator that those who've experienced divine forgiveness are truly the same, are never truly the same. So, so, So then he issued a consequential judgment. The consequence was grave. It might seem harsh. However, it is a prison of unforgiveness he puts him in. And so I think the warning to us is to be careful of our hearts and then to recognize that there is this consequence. But here's what I think that it's really, the the third thing here is through the decisive reaction of the king, we see the divine ramification of the truth. Look at what Jesus says in verse 35. Right? So so this man doesn't, he doesn't forgive. He should have remembered. He clearly forgot. He wasn't repentant. And so he's put in this prison until he pays the debt. And so what is the divine ramification of the truth? So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now here's the point. The point is not, oh, well, you know, if I struggle with forgiving people, then I'm going to lose my salvation. Absolutely not what the text is teaching. The text is teaching that forgiveness is the foundation for every believer. And so even if we struggle with forgiveness, we need to have a posture in our hearts that say, Man, I have been forgiven, therefore God help me to be, enable me to be a forgiving person. Let's not walk away from this thinking, wow, this is just all easy. It's not. That's not what Jesus, you know why we know it's not easy? Because Jesus uses this, he's using the gospel itself as the driving force for the principle. And so, forget, here's what I'm getting at. Let me put it to you in plain terms. Forgiveness is impossible. There I said it, apart from the gospel. Do you hear it? Forgiveness is impossible apart from the cross. It does not mean we should be treated sinfully, abused, or taken advantage of, yet here's what I think at the end, what Jesus is saying is, man, look, look, I'm gonna tell you this story. Isn't that bizarre? See, that's not how believers look. I think, it's a, again, it's, it's, it's to illustrate a higher point that the gospel really does transform us. And it enters into our most, the messiest of our situations, and it brings divine grace. And I'm convinced that if we live in the truth of the gospel, that we can navigate the most difficult situation in our lives with hope and grace. I went back to my home in that situation, just being somewhat, just trying to be lighthearted in that illustration. But do you know where all those conversations always ended up? At the cross. You wanna know why we should be forgiving one another? Because Jesus has forgiven us. And so let's live in that. And that brings us to the kingdom question has the gospel of forgiveness made you a forgiver toward others? I think every one of us would say yes, but not nearly. I'm not, I haven't arrived yet. Do you need to ask God to give you strength to forgive? And so in conclusion, what is the answer for unforgiveness? 
Well, the answer is the cross. How is forgiveness possible? I've already said it's the gospel. And, and I've read this illustration many times over the years, but, and it's, it appears in all sorts of books, but it's worth telling you in closing. Corey Ten Boom, who wrote The Hiding Place, whose family was killed in the Holocaust. Corey Ten Boom, some years after she survived and as she began to tell her story, she was speaking at a church, sharing her testimony at a church in Munich. And there was a man that was in the audience, and as she was speaking, sharing her testimony, she noticed the man, and the man had been one of the, concentra- one of the guards at the concentration camp, Ravensbrück, which was one of the most violent, most horrific concentration camps in World War II in Nazi Germany. Well, she saw him. And the minute she saw him, all the memories came back. The pile of clothes on the floor, the screaming soldiers, the violence, the mocking. She could remember her sister's agonizing face who would eventually die. And so this man at the end of the service came up to her and said to her, I I am so grateful for your testimony. And to think, to think that he, Christ, has washed away my sin. And then he reached out his hand to shake her hand, and she froze. She kept her hand to her side. And she writes, and she says, her anger boiled. The sin of the Nazis were right in front of her. She wondered, Jesus Christ died for this man. Am I going to ask for more? She then began to pray in this brief stretch of seconds. Lord Jesus, forgive me and help me. Help me to forgive him. She prayed, she looks at him, she, she, and then she felt nothing, nothing, and, and, and she wouldn't reach out. And then she prayed again in her mind, and she said, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And then suddenly, she felt a love come into her heart, and she reached out and embraced the stranger because of the truth of the gospel. And here's what Corey Ten Boom writes. I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but it's on him, Christ. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. So the answer to unforgiveness is the cross. So let me ask you two questions. Has God forgiven you of your sins and canceled your debts through Christ? And are you ready to extend the same forgiveness that you have been given. Let's stand. Let's bow our heads and let's pray and may the God of all grace and mercy allow this tale of forgiveness become the full story of our lives together as God's people. Father, thank you for this tale of forgiveness and thank you of the immensity of what Christ has done. Help us even now as we begin to sing to think about what Christ has done to pay the debt of our sin. And then, God, fill our hearts with grace and love and forgiveness toward others and even to our greatest enemies that might not even, that that exist even outside of the scope of the church. And then may we walk in that forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.